Please uh, recognize that what I read to you this morning is the inspired and errant and thus infallible Word of God. And it is given to us by God. And to hear it and obey it brings great blessing. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried by to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people. And all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed into pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, and we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I quoted this 
recently, but I wanted to say it again. Thomas Carlyle said, for every 100 people that can handle adversity, there is only one who can handle prosperity. Let me repeat that again. For every 100 people that can handle adversity, there is only one who can handle prosperity. Lots of books are written, especially in Christian uh, literature, dealing with the challenge of suffering and living in a fallen world. Not too many, however, are written regarding how to help Christians cope with prosperity. And yet, from the Bible's perspective, prosperity is often a much larger threat to the faith. As Israel stood on the verge of entering the promised land, Moses warned them of the dangers of prosperity. Listen as I read you from Deuteronomy. So shall you keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and that is precisely what happened precisely what happened the writer of proverbs sums it up like this give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is needful for me lest i be full and deny you and say who is the lord or lest i be poor and steal and profane the name of my god Hosea chapter 10 is another contribution to this theme. But Hosea chapter 10 provides its warning in the form of a living example. This is a case study drawn from Israel's history. The theme is established in the opening verse. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Understand at the time... Hosea was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. They were living large. It was a time of abundant prosperity. It was a time of fullness. It was a time in which people thought can't get much better on this side of glory. It was a, a time in which everything was full. Everything was filled. And Hosea comes along and tries to preach to his people that you're experiencing prosperity, but what's going to happen when prosperity leads God's people into an unfaithful lifestyle? 
And so in verses 1 through 2, he shows us a nation with no fruit. In chapter 9, verse 10, Hosea said that when God first found Israel, that is when he first formed her as a nation, she was like grapes in the wilderness. Now Hosea winds forward in the story to a time when Israel has become a luxuriant vine spreading throughout the promised land. Psalms 80 also uses the same imagery. It describes how God brought a vine out of Egypt. He cleared the ground for it by driving out the nations of the promised land. And under God's care, it has prospered and had now sent out its branches to the sea. Hosea's ministry, as I said earlier, began during a period of incredible expansion and prosperity. Things were great. But during the reign of Jeroboam II, where Hosea was ministering, there was a time of peace from the enemies around. There was a time of economic growth. But instead of thanking God for its prosperity, Israel used its wealth to build altars to other gods. Indeed, there's a direct correlation between her growing prosperity and her growing apostasy. That is, falling away from faithfulness and becoming unfaithful. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Now understand that God intended for Israel to have one place of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. One place where sacrifices occurred. It was centralized in Jerusalem. But because the kingdom split into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom had two places where worship occurred. One was in Samaria in the far north, and one was in Dan in the south. And so as a result of her prosperity, all these worship sites started springing up. As his country improved, Israel improved their pillars. What are pillars? That's what my dad used to call a pillow. Uh, Pam was making the bed one day with Mary when she was tiny. And Pam said, hand me the pillow. And Mary started laughing. And she just could stop herself from laughing. Pam said, what's so funny? It's not pillow, she said. It's pillar. <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. What are the pillars here? What are they? The pillars here are totems. That's what they are. They are shrines to other gods. They were local fertility symbols. Worship in Israel should have been established in Jerusalem, and the proliferation of local centers of worship was leading to a proliferation of false worship. Their material prosperity had not led the people to give thanks to the Lord for his provision. Instead, their heart became duplicitous. It became deceitful. It became false. And the people gave credit to the other gods rather than Yahweh. And as a result, the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. They have invested their prosperity not in worshiping Yahweh, but rather in altars and pillars. But these same altars and pillars will be destroyed by Yahweh. Israel is bearing lots of fruit, but it's not the fruit that really matters. Her harvests are good, but as we shall see, the harvest that really matters is absent, and that is the harvest of covenant love, which is reaped from the sowing of righteousness.
He says in verse 12 of chapter 10, sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love. That is the invitation of this entire chapter. This chapter is about judgment, but judgment is not always a negative thing. Judgment is a wake-up call, and we don't like to hear judgment. We don't like people to tell us we're judgy. But judgment just means from God's point of view, you are accountable to me. You have to answer to me. I made you. I redeemed you. You belong to me. And you have to face me. And there's a truth that you don't hear a lot about in today's world and today's culture because we're so autonomous. We like to believe we're a law unto ourselves and that we decide who, what, when, where, and how. But when God calls his people, they are accountable to him. They answer to him. And though they're bearing a lot of fruit, it's not the fruit of the Spirit, shall we say. The headline news in Israel was for another great harvest. But behind the headlines and the undertone underneath is what Hosea is saying. The real story is of a very different kind of harvest that is coming. The iniquity that the people have sown will lead to a harvest of judgment. As the author Moses of Numbers says, be sure your sin will find you out. I hate that verse sometimes. I hate that verse because it's true. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can hide it from a lot of people. But you can't hide it from the one who ultimately matters. So verses 3 and 4, he begins to talk about the political system. And as I've said throughout this whole book of Hosea, understanding the theocracy that God planted in the promised land is Israel, uh, the political system and the worship system intermeshed. They were together. And so the planting of iniquity and harvesting of injustice is a metaphor, but it points to what? It's a picture of both the political and religious systems of Israel. For we, now they will say, we have no king, we do not fear the Lord, and a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Hosea looks to the time when Israel has no king, or at least not a functional king. The people have lost confidence in the political system. So they would have no hope even if they did have a king. What could a king do for us, the people cry? Just like we today say, what can politicians do for us? At first sight, the phrase judgment springs up like poisonous weeds does look a little strange. Why would judgment be poisonous? But if you look underneath it, at the Hebrew language, it could be better said lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds. Lawyers have very little to do when people operate with trust and integrity. But if you sow integrity, then you will reap a culture of trust without much need for recourse to law. But... However, if you sow iniquity, then you will reap a culture of mistrust and betrayal in which lawsuits will abound. They utter mere words. In other words, their words have no power. They don't correspond to a genuine commitment. With empty oaths, they make covenants. 
When they do make contracts, those contracts cannot be trusted, and the promises these covenants enshrine are empty promises. As a result, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds. And it's the same today. In 1801, the motto of the London Stock Exchange has been dictum meum pactum. That's not tongues, that's Latin. So, it means my word is my bond. Originally, deals were made without the use of written documents, but today, lawyers and large companies earn buku money, drawing up and enforcing contracts. And it's the same with marriage. When people are faithful to the marriage covenant, there's little recourse to the law. To the law. But today, divorce suits are commonplace. All too often, the result is misery for those involved and trauma for their children. Lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds. God planted them as a luxuriant vine, and what have they become? They have become desolate. They have become fruitless. So, in verses 5 through 8, we see a religious system that has absolutely no future. You know, um, Jeroboam I was the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And he was faced with an immediate problem. His subjects were regularly making pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem, right at the heart of the rival regime. That meant money for the southern kingdom of Judah and exposure to their propaganda. So we have noted when we looked earlier in chapter 8 that Jeroboam established two rival shrines so that people would not go to the temple in Jerusalem and spend their money there. So he set up two golden calves, one in the south in his kingdom in Bethel and one in the north in Dan or Samaria. But by this point in the story, the northern shrine had fallen into enemy hands, so only one remains, the calf at Bethel. And this is what Hosea is referring to. The inheritance of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Except that Hosea does not call it Bethel, Beth, the house, El, of God, but rather Beth-Avon, which means the house of of evil or wickedness. The house of wickedness, the house of God has become the home of wickedness and evil. And the irony is the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf at Beth-Avon. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel and it represents the nation as a whole. You should tremble before your God, but the people tremble before their calf. It is a sign of powerlessness. It is true that your God should make you fear, but your God should make you fear because of his majesty and his holiness instead of the calf at Beth-Avon making people fear for their safety. And the people are right to fear for the future because it will be carried away to Assyria. Again, its impotence is highlighted. The calf will be carried away. To, it's unable to protect itself. It will be carried away. It will be departed. And so Hosea presents a series uh, of uh, judgment here, a series of reversals. The bountiful harvest of verse 1 will become a harvest of judgment in verse 4. 
The glory of Israel in verse 5, the calf of Beth-Avon, will become a source of shame in verse 6 as it is carried away. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. The many altars built in verse 1, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built will be destroyed in verses 2 and 8. The Lord will break down their altars. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. And so the thorns growing among the altars are a sign of desolation. They are a sign of the curse. Remember in the, uh, after the fall of man into sin in Genesis 3, uh, man's work which for him before the fall was a joy, became labor and toil because of the thorns and the thistles in the garden. And that is precisely what has happened to Israel. There is an undergrowth of thorns and thistles, but the fate of the people is even worse. An Assyrian army will wreak destruction across the land, and the people would wish that they would die in an earthquake rather than to endure the prolonged sufferings of slavery. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And we find this sentiment echoed by Jesus. In Luke 23, as he looks ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, but the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. and the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 are themselves the pointer to another fall, the final judgment. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we have another echo of Hosea 10.8 in the Apostle John's vision of the coming final day. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand I saw a bumper sticker one time it said, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he angry. <laughs> it didn't say angry, but you get it. The wrath of the Lamb. People are terrified. We need to flee from the wrath to come, the Bible tells us all the time. Israel's judgment is a pointer to the judgment of all humanity. In that day, people will wish for a quick death rather than face the wrath of God. In that day, who can stand? No one. But there is hope. In the book of Revelation, the apostle goes on to say, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. What's that? We are sealed through faith in the gospel message. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as a seal given to those who believe. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit indwelling me is a sign that God's wrath will never touch me or you. 
But in verses 9 and 10, he tells us a history doomed to be repeated. You see the word Gibeah used twice. And I have sort of not told you the story of Gibeah. You can read all about it in the book of Judges, but here's the story of Gibeah in short. Gibeah was a scene of one of the most sordid episodes in Israel's long history of wickedness. It is the one story children are never taught in Sunday school. In the days of the judges, a Levite was traveling with his concubine. That a Levite, one of the tribes entrusted with the care of Israel's worship, has a concubine is bad enough. But worse is to follow. They need to stop for the night, and Levite's servants suggest that they stop in a Jebusite village. The Jebusites were Gentiles. So the Levite decided they should press on to Gibeah, a tribe of Benjamin where he supposes they're going to be safely welcomed by fellow Israelites. He couldn't have been more wrong. At first, not one single person offers them any hospitality. Finally, an old man welcomes them into his home. But during the night, wicked men from the city surround the house. Bring out the man who came into your house, they demand, so that we may know him. That is, men in the city wanted to homosexually rape the visitor who was there. In other words, they wanted to gang rape the guest. And the old man rightly says they are acting wickedly, and he describes their request as vile and an outrageous thing. But then he does the inexplicable. He offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine as an alternative. The men continue until the Levite pushes his concubine out to them, and the men of the city, we are told, abused her all night. In the morning, the Levite opens the door of the house, and behold, was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He callously tells her to get up because it's time to leave, but she's dead. He clearly has no love for her, to him, she is simply a possession to be used, abused, and disposed of as he sees fit. But he is affronted at the violation of his personal property, so he cuts her body, up her body, into 12 pieces and posts them to the 12 tribes of Israel, calling on them to do justice. When the people of Israel hear what has happened, they say, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. That's from Judges chapter 19. The tribes of Israel gather together and demand that the tribe of Benjamin hand over the men of Gibeah. The Benjamites refuse, and as a result, there's a civil war. Uh, eventually, Israel prevails, and the Benjaminites are massacred. 25,000 Benjaminites, that's hard to say, men, the Benjamins, <laughs> are killed, leaving only 600 survivors. Once their bloodlust is satiated, the people of Israel begin to realize the consequences, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? The tribe of Benjamin just about survives, but the 12 tribes of Israel came perilously close to becoming merely 11 tribes of Israel. Now this story is about to be repeated, Hosea says. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, 
And there they continue. Gibeah's crime was not the exception. Israel has continued to sin. The events of Gibeah might have been one of the worst incidents, but it was an unrestrained expression of sin in the hearts of all people. And so Israel has not moved on. They have continued with the same pattern of behavior. And so the war against Gibeah was a war against the unjust. They had committed the crime. It was right that they should be punished. Even though the execution and the executioners of justice were flawed, justice had overtaken them. But now, suggests Hosea, justice will again overtake the unjust. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, the Lord says, I will discipline them. This time, God's instrument of justice will not be the tribes of Israel, but other nations. You know, God uses primary and secondary causes. If you read the quote in your bulletin, uh, Herman Bovink on the doctrine of providence, God uses first causes and secondary causes. First causes are what God himself does and inflicts upon a people. Secondary causes are God raising up nations like Assyria to come down and become his instrument of judgment upon his people. God is at war with his people. The holy warrior is no longer fighting Israel's enemies. The holy warrior is now fighting Israel. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in verse 11, Hosea likens Israel to a heifer or a calf used for plowing. In the past, Israel was well-trained and loved her work. In other words, she loved obeying and serving the Lord. I spared her fair neck means that in the past, God did not let her be treated harshly. But now she must suffer and toil. This is not the yoke Jesus promises when he says, come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No, this is a yoke of judgment. This is being harnessed for servitude at the hands of the Assyrians. He also warns the southern kingdom, Judah, that Judah's going to plow. In other words, judgment's coming for you too. Judah almost had a tendency to rejoice the southern kingdom over the captivity of the northern kingdom, as people are wont to do, but God also includes them in the condemnation. And so Israel is to become the sower. Look at verse 12. This is the best hope in the whole passage. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea now speaks, and in the light of God's warning of judgment, he exhorts his people to act, and he gives to them an implicit promise. We are still on the farm, but now Israel is likened to a farmer sowing seed. And so using this imagery, Hosea exhorts the people. He says, sow righteousness, break their fallow ground, seek the Lord. They're all different ways of making the same point. The people are to seek God in faith and repentance, and the idea is expressed in the images of sowing and plowing. To sow for yourselves righteousness is not simply to do righteous deeds. Righteousness meant doing right by your word or being true to a covenant. That this righteousness is covenantal is confirmed by the corresponding promise of steadfast love or covenant love. So to sow righteousness was to return to the covenant God. 
had made with his people. It meant being loyal to God above all else. It meant using the provision in the covenant for sin, namely the atonement symbolized in the sacrifices. The people were to turn from their sins, turn back to God in renewed fidelity and seek his forgiveness as it was embodied in the sacrificial system. Fallow ground is ground that has not been worked. Before it can be fruitful again, it must be broken up, and that is hard work. Let me tell you, I know a little bit about that. A rite of passage for me occurred. I don't remember how old I was, but my dad had a rotor tiller. You know what a rotor tiller is? You crank it up, and these uh, plows on it start moving. And it takes a pretty strong person to stand behind that thing and tear up uh, the land for a garden. And I remember doing that, and that's about the only thing I enjoyed doing in the garden, was plowing. <laughs> and that was because I wasn't plowing, I was just standing behind this rotor tiller, tearing the ground up. But fallow ground is ground that hasn't been worked, and so it has to be broken up. So it was with the culture of Israel. Israel's religion, has, uh, his religious life had fallen into decay. To return to vitality would be hard work. Habits would have to be relearned. The culture would have to be reset. Above all, they would need to repent. Imagine soil from a vegetable path that has been worked year after year after year. Compare that with a footpath that's been trodden hard by the passage of many people. The vegetable, vegetable path is immediately fruitful. However, the path that is hard will require a lot of work, breaking the crust, loosening the soil, adding compost, etc., etc. In the same way, the Israelites are to break their hard hearts and seek the mercy from God. If sin has become a habitual act in your life, then change is rarely easy. There's often hard work involved in reforming habits, and the hard soil of our instinctive responses and patterns of thinking need to be broken up. Dying to sin means dying. We are to put to death. Colossians 3 tells us everything of the sinful nature. Over time, however, new habits of righteousness start to replace the hard soil of our hearts as... Um, Chalmers says there is power, the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, our hearts get woven into a lifestyle of sinning where it becomes habitual and normal. And the only thing that can expel that is falling in love again with your Savior. The expulsive power, the casting out power of a new affection. So... If they do this, a twofold promise accompanies the exhortation. They will reap steadfast love. If they return to the covenant, they'll enjoy the covenant love of God and his blessing. Imagine, as Hosea has already invited us to do, an unfaithful wife who abandoned her husband, if she returns to her marital covenant, then she can expect, if her husband is gracious, and Israel's husband is gracious, to enjoy, again, covenant love. Second, as Israel sows righteousness, then God may come and rain righteousness upon you. The battle with sin is often painful, but it's worth it. It leads to joy. It leads to the joy of knowing God and knowing ourselves to be in his will. 
Finally, we have Israel the reaper given to us in verses 13 through 15. Hosea calls on Israel to sow righteousness. The problem is Israel has been planting other things. Instead of sowing righteousness, the people have chosen to plow iniquity. Inevitably, this has led to a harvest of injustice and lies. And instead of trusting God, they've trusted in their own wisdom and their own military strength. And so the initial harvest is a national life characterized by injustice and lies. But the ultimate harvest is the judgment of God. War shall fall and come upon Israel. Chapter 10 is full of agriculture, cultural imagery. In particularly, the lang language of sowing and harvesting. Israel is producing a lot of literal fruit. She is also reaping a big harvest, verse 1 says. Israel is not producing spiritual fruit, so she's reaping a harvest of lawsuits, verse 4. Israel is not producing spiritual fruit, so her religious sites will become unharvested wastelands, verse 8. If Israel sows covenant faithfulness, then she will reap a harvest of covenant love, verse 12. Israel is sowing iniquity, so she is reaping a harvest of injustice, Verse 13, Israel is sowing iniquity. She will reap a harvest of judgment. Sort of makes you believe you reap what you sow. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that he also reaps. If you sow to the flesh, you shall reap what? Rotten flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you shall reap what? Eternal life. God cannot be mocked. I think as we think about this in application to our own hearts, Hosea's description of Israel as a vine, and a similar image is used by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. He describes Israel as God's vineyard. But Israel has borne no fruit, so God will uproot her. At first, Hosea looks to be using imagery in a different way. He describes Israel as a luxuriant vine that produces a lot of fruit, but these literal harvests mask the spiritual barrenness of Israel. On the outside, everything was going lovely. Spiritually, the only harvest she is producing are the poisonous weeds of lawsuits, injustice, and lies. And so Jesus picks up this imagery in John chapter 15. He describes himself in John chapter 15 as the true vine. He is the true vine in contrast to Israel, a vine that ultimately proved false. He is the vine that produced fruit and that has produced a harvest of righteousness. Jesus goes on to describe in John chapter 15 his father as the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We must remain in Christ, and we must expect God to prune us. If we do not remain in Christ, then like Israel in Hosea 10, we can expect God to uproot us. The picture here is of Jesus as a vine, a long stem, as it were, off of which are hundreds of branches representing Christians. 
Jesus gives us life, just as the stem of a vine gives life to the branches. You cut a branch off, and it soon withers. Without Jesus, the branches have no life. But connected to him, they bear good fruit. This picture helps us understand the relationship between salvation and our actions. The message of Isaiah and Hosea and Jesus is not that we must try hard to produce a good harvest so that we can earn our salvation. It's not a solo bootstrapist philosophy of life. If Hosea leaves us frustrated at our inability to produce a harvest, then it is so that we might run into the arms of Jesus. We need a Savior. Jesus is the true vine. He is the one who gives life to the branches. And that is how it is with trees. Now, I've been around gardens, and I've got to tell you something. I have never walked over to a plant and heard a plant straining to make fruit. All that a plant does is as long as the branch is connected to the stem, the branch is getting the life-giving power to produce what? Fruit. You don't hear the branch straining. Sola bootstrapus. He's resting, abiding. We'll talk about what that is in a moment. Living in the reality of the vine. And so... It's a beautiful picture here of spiritual growth. Vines do not draw life back out of their grapes. No, they get their life from the stem. How do you know which branches are alive? They produce fruit. Fruit is a sure sign of life, but it's not the cause of life. Let me, let me erase the word produce. They don't produce fruit. They bear fruit. Very big difference. It's not the cause of life. So it is with the Christian. In the form of spiritual growth, knowledge of God, expressed in prayer, love for others, longing to spread the name of Jesus, a desire to be with and meet with God's people, a hunger for his word, a desire to do good works, is a sure sign of spiritual life. This fruit shows that we really belong to Christ, that we are genuine Christians, that we are connected to the stem. But they do not give us life. No more than grapes give life to the vine. The life comes from the stem. Our life comes from Jesus. That's what John 5.15 says. That is why we can say without fruit, you cannot be a Christian. But at the same time, you're not saved by what you do, but only through the life that Jesus gives. The fruit doesn't make you a Christian, but it does show that you are a Christian. Jesus says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In John 15, Jesus is talking about fruitfulness. In verse 16, he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The purpose of Jesus for us is that we bear fruit. He chose us. He set us apart to be fruitful. And that fruit is fruit that will last. It is the fruit of godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of service, the fruit of mission. So how can we be fruitful? The secret of effective Christian living is as follows. First, God himself is at work. We cannot be fruitful on our own. We have a part to play, but we are dependent upon uh, God. Jesus says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. 
I have said already that we are to weed out sin in our lives. And the metaphor shifts here to pruning out dead wood in our lives. That it may bear more fruit. And so, God takes the lead. He uses circumstances in our lives to shape us for his service. God makes us fit for the purpose through his word. The words prune and clean are the same word. God cleans us through the circumstances of our life, and he cleans us through his word. And the word of God identifies that we are being unfruitful. It highlights sin that makes us fruitless. And so the word of God gives remedy in the work of Jesus. His power, his forgiveness, his grace motivates us to holiness, shapes our lives, and forms our character. Our responsibility is to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ. Abide in me as I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. A branch cannot be disconnected from the stem of the vine and continue to bear fruit. It just withers and dies. In the same way, we can only be fruitful if we remain in Christ. And without continual dependence upon Jesus, without having communion with him daily, without talking to him in prayer, without seeking the grace that is found through him and looking to the resources he supplies and submitting to his will, fruitfulness is impossible. We have to remain in Christ. How do we remain in Christ? Through using the means of grace. When was the last time you read your Bible? When was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you had fellowship with other Christians? When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? When was the last time you gave to missions? When was the last time you asked God if he wanted to use you in missions? That's how you remain and abide in Christ. And fruit will be produced. Not only fruit, that is, in John's instance, usually means converts, but in Paul's instance, it means things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, self-control. All of those things, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Just as God took Israel as a vine and planted her as a luxurious vine in the promised land. Why? Not just so that Israel could could congratulate herself as being Yahweh's sole worshipers, but that through Israel, mission would occur to reach the nations. It is always God's heart for his people to be fruitful. Why? To earn brownie points for us? No. To show the nations who he is. To show his glory. To show his goodness. To show his grace. We're always involved in mission. The heart of God is missions. And that is exactly what Jesus tells us in John chapter 15. It is our day-to-day obedience to the word of Jesus because we enjoy his love. 
It's not simply a list of do's and don'ts. It is an obedience that springs from a relationship of love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love and obedience are all tied up together. Love leads to obedience, and obedience is all about loving. Love expresses itself in obedience, and obedience expresses itself in love. And obedience leads to joy. Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's how Jesus gives us joy. Sow for yourselves, Hosea says. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. What are you sowing? What are you sowing? What will you sow today? What are you going to reap later? Verse 13 says, Because you have trusted in your own way, what tasks and struggles await you today, this week, how are you going to overcome them? How will you remain godly? Ask God to empower you by His Spirit and remain, abide in Christ. That's where the power is. I can give you a list of everything you need to do knowing this up front. You don't have the power to do it, and neither do I. And it's only as I learn to draw from Him the sap of spiritual power and joy by using the means of grace. That obedience becomes a reality. That fruit happens. That mission occurs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, this mighty prophet in the book of Hosea. Sometimes, because of its repetitive nature, we tend to tune out because we can only take so much. But in reality, it's the same word speaking to us today in 2019. Lord, we pray that we would grow in our fruitfulness and that that fruitfulness would evidence the reality of our connection to you, a living, organic connection through faith resting in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the way you love us. We thank you for the way you always call us back home for the way you receive us when we come, that there's joy in the presence of God every time a sinner repents. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, may we give as those who are sowing to reap a harvest of fruitfulness that redounds to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.